Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. The recent news that Secretary of State Rafson Perger, honest to God, that's his name, the Secretary of State of Georgia, has said that they are going to do a statewide hand recount, which could push Georgia, the electoral vote from Georgia, or could provide the Georgia legislature and uh, Brian Kemp with an excuse not to certify the Georgia vote. So that, that's kind of a wild card. But before that happened, and even with that happening, I think that for the institutional Republican Party, I think a lot of them have just kind of come to terms with the fact that Donald Trump has lost the election, that Joe Biden won by the, the largest popular vote margin since Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, it's just it's a big deal. He won a lot. As, as just like in 2018, you know, the, the votes continue to come in and we and we kept hearing what was going on. But the reason why they're dragging this out, in my opinion, is to test public opinion. How far can they push this? And I think they're testing public opinion to find out how far they can push it with an eye to 2024, four years from now. The next election in 2024, I guarantee you, even if Donald Trump runs for president, and it looks like he will, he just created a brand new pack where all the money goes to him. And that's going to be the 60% recipient of all donations for all the fundraisers Trump sends out. I've gotten nine of them since I went to bed last night. Nine emails begging for money and proclaiming that he won and that he's fighting this and he's fighting that. And won't you help out here or there and, you know, help us in Wisconsin. And then you read the fine print and it's like, oh, the money's going to Donald Trump. But in any case, that in 2024, I don't think Trump is going to be the nominee well, even if he is, he's a good fascist, right? But I'm suspecting it'll be a competent fascist, somebody like Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton. And their strategy to win, keep in mind, the last time a Republican nominee for president, who was not already president, the last time a Republican nominee for president won the majority of the national vote. And, and frankly, if I can frank luntz this, we need to stop calling it the popular vote. That sounds like you know, it's a popularity contest, which isn't real or important. It's the national vote. 
the last time a Republican candidate, first time candidate for president, won the national vote was in 1988. It has been 32 years since a a Republican first time out won the national vote. So I don't think they're expecting to win the national vote in 2024. But I think they are planning on taking the Electoral College, but not the old fashioned way, not with help from the Supreme Court like George W. Bush did, not with some help from foreign governments and Mark Zuckerberg like Donald Trump did, but by having the individual states simply decide who their electoral votes are going to be going for. This is part of the Electoral College. I mean, Al Gore won the majority of the national vote. Hillary Clinton won the majority of the national vote. Neither became president because of the Electoral College loophole. And this time, Joe Biden won the national vote. And right now, Trump and the Republicans are saying he shouldn't be president, again, because of the Electoral College loophole. The Electoral College was put into place in 1789, as Alexander Hamilton pointed out in Federalist 68. He said it was because we were, uh, he didn't say it like this in Federalist 68, but I'll give you a quote from that in just a moment. We were, at that time, in 1798, when we became a republic, we were physically the largest developed country for the time in the world. I mean, the eastern seaboard of the United States from Florida to New Hampshire is huge. And so as Hamilton wrote in Federalist 68, he said, talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state. In other words, being a con man might get you elected governor. But Alexander Hamilton wrote, it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him as president of the United States. So they established the Electoral College because, you know, people in Georgia couldn't travel up to D.C. to meet their candidates. Or actually, it was in New York was the seat of government in 1798. But by the 1850s, the Electoral College was already obsolete. You had the Pony Express, you had railroads, the mail, first national newspapers. But Right now, the Republicans are banking everything on minority rule. The Democrats in the United States Senate represent 15 million more Americans than do the Republicans. But the Republicans control the Senate. George W. Bush and Donald Trump became president, and both of them lost the national vote. We have to get rid of the Electoral College, and we need to do it in the next four years. And this should be like job one. There's two ways to do this. One is to have individual states sign up for the national compact, the interstate compact, uh, to do this. We need 70, I believe it's 74 more electoral college votes, states representing that number of votes. And the way to do that, of course, and these are all Republican-controlled states, is to pour money and resources into those states, particularly in the 2022 election, so that those states' legislatures can flip and we can get this in, or with a constitutional amendment, which will be even harder because it takes two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the states. That ain't going to happen. But this needs to be top priority, and Democrats need to start talking about this. We need to start yelling about this. You know, this is minority rule. So there's that. 
Yesterday, I mentioned Emily Murphy. Somebody called and mentioned Emily Murphy. She's the person in the General Services Administration who is blocking Joe Biden's access to the transition funds. And I mentioned that there were a couple of other things that she had done, but I didn't have the details right in front of me, so I didn't want to lay it out until I had them. I do have them now. When not just Democrats, but constitutional scholars pointed out that the lease on the old post office building in Washington, D.C. that was given to Donald Trump so that he could build his hotel there. That lease, number one, says that no elected official can hold that lease. So Trump is in violation of the lease. And number two, the emoluments clause of the Constitution says that no American president can take money from any foreign entity. And so, you know, the first time somebody who's not a U.S. citizen stays at the Trump Hotel, he's in violation of the emoluments clause. So who was it who issued the ruling that, oh, that's okay. We're not going to do anything about that. It was Emily Murphy. And then secondly, the FBI building is right across the street, or it's a a block down and across the street, from the Trump Hotel. And the FBI wanted to move out to Virginia into larger, more spacious, more modern facilities and sell that little corner location, not little, that that big corner location right there on the main drag on Pennsylvania Avenue, sell it presumably to a hotel company. So there could have been a Marriott across the street from Donald Trump's hotel or a Hyatt or, or some other nice hotel. And she was the person who put the kibosh on that. And by the way, the FBI had been planning this for years. And she was the one who said, no, this isn't gonna happen. She is a Trump toady, Emily Murphy. And, you know, frankly, I think we should be paying attention to this. Anyhow, I got a, 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 a pile, a pile of stuff to share with you. So we need to be thinking right now about how to Trump proof the presidency in the future. I mean, Donald Trump is causing all kinds of chaos and disasters, and things are, frankly, I think, going to get much worse before they get better. And I don't think they're going to get better until after January 21st or noon on January 20th. And that's assuming that absolute craziness doesn't happen. But there's a bunch of steps that we need to take from recalibrating or fixing how we do our elections to fixing how we handle money in politics to fixing the pardon power of the presidency to specifically saying that if a president is found to be a criminal, he or she can still be held to account. I mean, just straightforward stuff. And we need to be getting ready to do this. I lay it all out in a new video that you can find over at TomHartman.com. Moses in La Mesa, California. Hey, Moses, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. Good morning. The Democrats, why is it that they don't campaign or speak more on the issues simply like the, on the history of their achievement? For example, they gave us Medicare, they gave us Social Security, but most Americans don't know that anymore. They don't talk about it in simplified terms. Most of these red states, they love Medicare. They love Social Security. Yet, Democrats don't talk about it. And on yeah. national platform, when they are campaigning, they don't even campaign as Democrats. 
So this is the, one of the problems I think Democrats are having in winning elections anymore. Though we win the national election, national votes, but we hardly win the electoral college vote because the electoral college vote is a constitutional technicality. Part of the problem, Moses, is that Democrats don't have a unified, cohesive, coherent message. That's part of the problem. The frankly larger part of that program is even if they did, they don't have a megaphone to amplify that message. They don't have 1,500 radio stations around the country like, you know, Republicans have 1,500 right wing radio stations around the country. Democrats have, you know, a handful. They don't have a television network that's on every cable system in the country like Fox News. The Republicans do Fox News. Even MSNBC, you'll probably remember two years ago when when Trump was destroying net neutrality, MSNBC hosts didn't even discuss it because they're owned by Comcast and Comcast doesn't want net neutrality. The only progressive television network out there right now is Free Speech TV. And Free Speech TV, for reasons that are beyond me, won't hire a PR firm and do promotion for themselves. So most people don't even know that they exist. So I have to turn to my listeners and say, please let people know. But this is a problem. I mean, you know, the whole media infrastructure thing. Yes, it is. Because even when our leaders are on the national stage, they don't talk about Medicare. And now Americans don't even know that Medicare was given to us by Democrats. And Social Security was given to us by Democrats. They go to Florida. Most people, most of Cuban Americans on Social Security don't talk about socialism, they don't even know what socialism means. And then they use the boogeyman of socialism to define the Democrats without knowing that social security is a social program that is helping them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the Republican Party has kind of branded itself as we're the party of Lincoln and Reagan. And the Democratic Party is like, you know, what's the issue we're talking? About? Oh, yeah, well, maybe it's Medicare for all. Oh, but some of us don't like that. Well, maybe it's the Green New Well, some of us don't like that. Maybe it's uh, women's right to an abortion. No, some of us don't like that. And that's how the Democratic Party is messaging right now, which is really unfortunate. Moses, thank you for the call. I got to tell you about this new COVID vaccine. It's absolutely fascinating. Stick around. We'll be right back. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. I mentioned the virus vaccine. This is fascinating. Donald Trump and Mike Pence, of course, immediately claim credit for this vaccine coming from Pfizer. It's one of many. By the way, this this vaccine is an RNA vaccine. Messenger RNA is a a type of RNA that that basically codes the production of DNA and uh, or codes for the production of proteins. And this RNA is designed, it gets injected into your muscle tissue and causes some of your cells to start producing a protein, which is identical to the protein in the spikes on the surface of the COVID virus. Now, that protein doesn't cause your body to freak out, but it does, you know, in other words, you don't get sick from it, but it does produce an immune response to that particular protein, which will help neutralize the virus. And that's just, that's how that works. It's never been done before. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first RNA virus out there. There's also another company that has 
taken that a similar protein or maybe the same protein and they have modified the DNA of a tobacco plant so that it will produce that protein and then they're, t- they're extracting that protein from that tobacco plant and using that for a vaccine. So instead of tricking the body into making the protein, you know, directly injecting the protein. There's a half a dozen different ways that these types of vaccines are being developed. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. But this one, the, the Pfizer one, is the one that jacked the stock market day before yesterday. And the one that Donald Trump you know, and Mike Pence immediately tried to claim credit for. Trump saying, you know, this is Operation Warp Speed. And Mike Pence saying, yes, we helped make this happen. And then Pfizer, of course, came out and said, no, you didn't. You had nothing to do with it. We didn't take a penny of government money. And by the way, we started working on this vaccine back in January. In January. That's why they're first to the market. They started working on it in January. Now, it wasn't actually Pfizer Pfizer that did it. Pfizer has partnered with another company. And the name of that company is BioNTech, B-I-O, capital N, capital T-E-C-H, BioNTech. And BioNTech was started by Ugar Sahin and Oslem Teresi, who are, I believe they're a husband and wife, oh yeah, the couple, yeah, so who founded this company, BioNTech. They are the children of Turkish gastarbeiters. Gastarbeiter is the German word for guest workers. After World War II, there was a shortage of of, uh, men to rebuild the country. And so Germany invited Turks, people from Turkey, to come up and help rebuild the country. But they never gave them citizenship, or at least they didn't for many years. When I lived there in the 80s, this was a hot issue because in some cases, these were second and third generation people who had been living in Germany. They were born in Germany. They spoke German. German culture was the only thing they ever knew, but they still didn't have German citizenship. And I I understand that Germany has started giving citizenship to a lot of these gastarbeiters. I'm not sure of the details of that. My apologies for that. But these two people, this couple who invented this vaccine and who own this little company that Pfizer partnered with are the children of the very kinds of immigrants, people of color from a foreign country, are the very kinds of immigrants that Stephen Miller and Donald Trump are trying to keep out of the United States. Amazing. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has created a new pack. I've been telling you about the fine print. When you get a fundraising letter from Donald Trump, click on the link and just go to the page and just read the fine print. And it says 60% of the money goes to a Donald Trump fund. This was to pay down his election debts. And, and, of course, a lot of that election debt is the money that they're paying to one of his son's wives and the, and the other son's girlfriend in order to be out on the campaign trail, et cetera. Uh, both of them, Eric's wife and, and Don's girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, making 180000 bucks a year out of this campaign. So that's where that money is going. But now Trump has started a whole brand new super PAC or a brand new PAC. It's not a super PAC. And uh, it's called Save America PAC. And it was registered this week. It was registered on Monday, according to the New York Times, with the FEC. And these kinds of PACs are pretty extraordinary in that Donald Trump will be able to use all the money that this PAC collects to pay for travel, to pay for all the expenses associated with rallies, to pay for all of his meals and hotel stays when he is traveling for doing these things, which will be pretty much all the time, and it'll always be at Trump property, so all that money goes into his pocket. He can use the money that this PAC raises to pay his children, to work on his staff. He can use it to pay for his children's partners, as they're doing right now, to work on his staff, Laura Trump and Kimberly Guilfoyle. 
Uh, he can hold events at Trump properties and quadruple the price. Say, hey, this ballroom is normally $50,000 to rent, but today it's a million. And the PAC will pay that. I mean, it's just this is just another. I'm telling you, Trump is he's got a new scam going. The old scam was real estate. That scam has kind of run its course. He's not he's going to have a real hard time, frankly, laundering money for foreign oligarchs and autocrats and, and criminals with real estate going forward because people are onto it. So what's his new way of, of making money? It's going to be perpetually running for office. Mark my words. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Esther Forbes' book, Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. It was actually sent to me in 2010. It's a remarkable book. You'll recall I've talked about how every time our country reboots, it goes through a major transformation. It's the result of, or it follows an economic crash. Every time we do a positive transformation. And, you know, we've talked about the crash of 1837, the crash of 1856, the crash of 1889, the crash of 1929, all of which provoked very positive changes. I suppose you could argue the Civil War wasn't a positive change, but this is what provoked the Revolutionary War. This is from page 98 of Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. January 15, 1765, the trade, Merchant Row noted, has been much alarmed this day. Mr. Wheelwright stopped payment and kept his room. A great number of people will suffer by him. Nat Wheelwright was the first of many merchants to collapse that spring. During the war, merchants had increased their stock and speculated. Farmers had enlarged their farm. Those boom years were over. The Depression was begun, and in Boston, it lasted 20 years. January 19th, 1765. Very bad accounts. Dr. John Scole, shut up. Dr. John Denny, shut up. And Peter Bourne of the North End. By shut up, they mean close their businesses. Am unlikely to be a large sufferer by Scole. Now Mr. Rowe is really apprehensive. He is a cautious gentleman, no longer young. Even the walking was dangerous that day. Extreme bad and slippery. This is his diaries she's reading from. Next day was Sabbath. Mr. and Mrs. Rowe never missed services at Trinity, but did not go to church, my mind too much disturbed. Just as he should have been starting, his dear friend Joseph Scott had come up to see him very disturbed. Sure enough, next day, Mr. Scott had also shut down his business, and William Haskin and the company had been shut down as well. A bank failed for 170,000 British pounds. Mr. Savage fell in a fatal apocalyptic fit in his lawyer's office. Captain Forbes shut up his shop today and much grieved for him, wrote one of the diaries. The merchants were going down like a house of playing cards. Each big house, such as Mr. Rowe mentions, carried innumerable small ones with it. Shipwrights, sailors, and sailmakers might suffer first, but tailors and peruki makers, button molders or soap boilers, silversmiths or braziers all followed. Rents and mortgages could not be paid. The clergy began to find more copper and less silver in the alms basin. Farmers drove mutton to town, could get no decent price, and angrily drove them home again. Only one-fifth of the usual numbers of ships cleared that water from Boston for the West Indies. Not only was the artificial wartime prosperity over, but the merchants could not pay the duties now demanded of them. They experimented in short runs along the coast or kept their ships laid up as one after another shut down. The stagnation of trade gave everyone, from Mr. Rowe and his fellow merchants like the young Mr. John Hancock, dining as elegantly as ever at the Royal Coffee House, to the meanest porter and the cheapest alehouse, a leisure to talk they had never enjoyed before. Boston went off into a talking jag that did not end until Lexington. That would be the shot heard around the world. Why was there no money to be made on the fine ships, which for a hundred years had been bringing wealth to Boston? Why was there no work for a willing, able-bodied man? Who was to blame? England's efforts to enforce her navigation acts had upset long-established trade habits, 
but she had not as yet actually collected enough money over here to pay her customs officials. It seemed to have been the general opinion from the top of the social ladder to the bottom that England was to blame. The overexpansion in the last 40 years probably had as much to do with it as England, but it was the meddlesome tyrant from overseas that was the scapegoat. King George III was popular. Their enemy was Parliament. Grenville, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, looked about for some other form of taxation that could actually produce the money. Controlling smuggling over so long a coast, 3,000 miles away, was proving expensive, impractical, and extremely unpopular. After talking with the colonial agents in London and asking for alternative suggestions, he put the Stamp Act through Parliament. I am not, however, he said, set upon this tax. If the Americans dislike it and prefer any other method, I shall be content, provided the money must be raised. As soon as the Stamp Act went into effect, which it never did, every legal document, every newspaper or commercial paper would need a stamp, costing from a half penny to 20 shillings. It would require very few officers to enforce and no breaking and entering of private property. As Grenville argued, it would fall fairly equally on all colonies and classes. But it was technically an internal tax, not an external like a customs duties, and its theory frightened the colonists. Whether or not England had the legal right to tax these colonies in any way she pleased does not seem to be settled yet. Probably she had, but it was the utmost folly to do so. This distinction, this is a quote, this distinction between internal and external taxes seems to be the inquirer today, as it did to so many in that day, almost a quibble. The one should be universally accepted through generations, and the other start men to their feet shouting, liberty or death has never been satisfactorily explained. Paul Revere and the world he lived in. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Wow, a lot going on in the world, and a lot of it seems to be Trump's last grift. Number one, it's fairly obvious, I think, to everybody. In fact, the New York Times is even, you know, one of the columnists, or maybe it's the Washington Post this morning, was was, uh, writing about how, you know, Trump's whole thing about not conceding and staying in office and calling fraud and all this. He's just doing this so that he can send out fundraisers. You know, I got like eight or nine of his fundraisers uh, between the time I went to bed last night and the time that I woke up this morning. It's just there's a constant. I must be getting 15 or 20 of these things a day. And now that he's set up his new PAC, I actually filed the papers on Monday, that new PAC became the place that gets 60% of all the money. So, you know, Trump is running a scam, a grift. But, you know, is there a bigger issue here? The founders' greatest fear when it came to the president was that a man would be installed in the office of the presidency who was actually either indebted to, which is why they put the emoluments clause in the Constitution, or, you know, has his primary loyalty to another government. Well, this, keep in mind, this was a time early in our republic when, when, you know, many people in government weren't actually born here. Alexander Hamilton, for example, you know. So, the, you know, that's why we've got the Emoluments Clause in the Constitution, which, which, of course, Trump has just been sneering at. So then we have this story back in 2017 of Jared Kushner. He had a billion-dollar debt coming due on his 666 Fifth Avenue property. You recall when his dad got out of prison, his advice to Jared was buy a big fancy high status office building in New York City, marry a woman who is rich and powerful and has good connections, and buy a newspaper. 
Those are the three suggestions his father laid on him after his dad, the professional grifter, got out of prison. And Kushner did all three. He married Ivanka Trump. He bought the New York Examiner. I believe it's called, maybe it's the Observer. It's an obscure newspaper, but it's a New York newspaper. And he bought 666 Fifth Avenue. And he paid $1.8 billion for it. Right now, it's worth about a billion. Maybe. And he needed enough money to pay off that mortgage because it was a short-term mortgage that, that he bought it on. So he goes to Saudi Arabia and the UAE and has this chummy visit with all these guys. And what do they do three weeks later? They blockade Qatar. And no water, no food, no weapons, no nothing. And it's not just a blockade of the land. Qatar's a peninsula that sticks out from, from that area into the Arabian Sea. And, and not only did they do a land blockade, they also did a sea and air blockade. So they were like, you know, we're going to starve you guys. And all of a sudden, an investment fund whose largest or second largest uh, owner, contributor, whatever you want to call it, is Qatar, is the sovereign wealth fund of Qatar, gives Jared Kushner a billion dollars and the blockade ends. And then Trump, he's been bragging that, you know, he, he prevented uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the dictator of Saudi Arabia, from being held responsible for murdering Jamal Khashoggi. And when Erdogan in Turkey, where Trump's got a hotel that produces a couple million dollars a year for him, when Erdogan said, stab the Kurds in the back, the Syrian Kurds, Trump said, okay, no problem. Remember those videos of the Kurds, the Kurdish soldiers fleeing the area and giving the finger to our, to our reporters? You know, screw you, America, you just stabbed us in the back? Well, you know, it guaranteed a couple million dollars a year of cash flow to Donald Trump, who is badly in debt. I mean, he's over a billion dollars in debt. And we know from his tax returns, at least $400 million of that he personally guaranteed. So what does he know? What does he have that could make him a billion dollars? What, what government or country might will, be willing to figure out a way to shovel a billion dollars to Donald Trump in exchange for something? I think it's a fairly open question. One possible answer, this is from the New York Times. This is uh, Sanger and Schmidt, uh, reporters of the New York Times, writing, quote, the hires, they're talking about this shakeup at the Pentagon, one of the guys, Cash Patel, was uh, Devin Nunes's guy who, you know, invented the whole the Russia investigations, a hoax thing. Anyhow, the quote is, the hires come as Mr. Trump and some of his aides have been pressing to declassify documents that would describe sources of information inside the Kremlin. Now, sources of information inside any foreign government is a euphemism for spies. Trump wants to out our spies? And I'm guessing this goes way beyond Russia. I mean, you know, is, is he outing people who have been, you know, in Saudi Arabia, who have not been friendly with Mohammed bin Salman? Is he outing people in Turkey? Is he, you know, uh, is he going to lo- use the last eight months to give uh, Erdogan that minister who's hiding out here in the United States that Erdogan has just been going nuts about? So is Trump... Trump on his way out running not just a grift on the suckers who fund him, but a larger grift that may be treason? I honestly don't know, but I am very concerned. It certainly is looking this way to me. The other point that I wanted to raise is... um, Quaid wrote this great piece over at Daily Kos a few days ago titled, Decades of Republican Mismanagement Have Left Red States Mired in the Past and at the Bottom. And just to lay this out, the Republicans have basically controlled the South ever since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. And this was key. That was in 64, 65. 
uh, civil rights, voting rights. And, and that was key to Richard Nixon's 1968 so-called Southern strategy of, hey, Republican Party, those racists in the South are up for grabs. Let's take them, which they did. So we've got, for example, Kentucky, Mitch McConnell's state. Kentucky gets $2.41 back for every dollar they send to Washington, D.C. In fact, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Louisiana rely on the federal government for more than 40% of their revenue, writes this op-ed over at Daily Kos. Now, most of our budget deficit is because of red states. You don't hear the Republicans squealing about this, right? The top five states for people on disability are red states. Disability is something, you know, people are modestly disabled, but are still capable of work. If they can get a job, they'll go to work. If there's no job, they'll go on disability, right? There's that kind of middle ground where they're legitimately disabled, but they also probably could work. But, you know, no jobs because of, you know, the red states, no education, no infrastructure, you know, no higher. Well, I'll get to that. But the five, the five worst states for disability Mississippi, Kentucky, Arkansas, Alabama, West Virginia. Nine of the top 10 states with the lowest labor force participation rate, What the, the point I was just making, are Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, West Virginia, South Carolina, Tennessee, and North Carolina. Poverty rates. Mississippi has the highest poverty rate in the nation at almost 20%, 19.8%. And then Louisiana at 187 West Virginia, 17%. Arkansas, 16%. North Carolina, 14%, Alabama, 16%, Kentucky, 16% on. Red states have the least educated populations. The states who rank at the bottom educationally are Tennessee, South Carolina, Kentucky, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, West Virginia, and Mississippi. This is what, you know, decades of Republican dominance. You know, red states have the, the smallest number of college degrees. That uneducated I gave you was just high school. When you look at college, the least number of college degrees. And it has just kept them at the bottom. And what happens when your population doesn't have a good education? <laughs> they don't do well economically. Uh, healthcare systems, the 10 states with the worst healthcare systems are Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, North Carolina, Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, South Carolina, Texas, and Alaska. Residents of Texas are six times more likely to not have health care than people who live in Massachusetts. Georgia has the worst child immunization rate in the country. I mean, it just goes on and on. At what point do Republicans wake up in these red states and realize that they've been screwed? They've been played by these Republicans for years. This is the Tom Hartman program. For 40 years, to be more specific, since the so-called Reagan revolution, or you could argue, you know, 60, 70 years, you know, all the way back to the Southern strategy. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols? in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day. It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. On the Science Revolution this week is Brian C. Murarescu. He'll be talking about how psychedelics played a role in the founding of Christianity and how Christian beliefs and traditions may have evolved in part from incorporating pagan rituals that use psychedelic drugs. Also, senior nuclear specialist of Greenpeace, Sean Burney, is here about how Fukushima poses a threat of damage to human DNA. 
Psychoanalyst and clinical professor Dr. Justin Frank drops by on the psychological bases for Trump's need to sue. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Steve in Topanga, California. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Good morning. It said that if, uh, I think it was Einstein that said it, if you do the same thing over and over and expect a different outcome, then that's kind of like you're insane. And if you look at the, how the House keeps passing bills and sending it over to the Senate and they get buried, it seems to me, and this is my logic and reason, that the Democrats now should put everything towards the two senators running in Georgia. And because if, if we don't retain the Senate, then there's nothing progressive going to get passed, and the fascists are going to come back in four years. Then there's a possibility if we win those races, like you said, we can change people's lives, we can float everyone's boat, and if they don't have a boat, we can give them a boat. And so I just think that that's where we should We're focus our attention. So that's my. I, like I guarantee you that the Democratic Party is focusing a lot of attention on those two races in Georgia. And I think the entire country is, you know, we certainly are. That said, every time the House passes a bill that the Senate won't consider, like the two times the, the $3 trillion bailout for average working Americans that the House passed, and Mitch McConnell said, no, we won't pass that. There's not enough money for rich people in it. And the $2 trillion bailout that the House passed for average working people and for long-term unemployed. And again, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate said, nope, sorry, you're giving too much money to average working people. It's got to go to the billionaires. We only give money to billionaires. We're Republicans. Those two efforts proved, I think, you know, they showed America where the Republican Party is at and where Mitch McConnell is at. And we need to keep doing that. We need to keep pointing that out, in my opinion. So, yeah, I, think, I agree uh, with you. And I, I, I like what your you're saying, but I like the way that you were identifying the differences between the blue states and the red states. You know, California gives way more money to the federal government than we get back. And that's a lot of blue states yeah. are like that. I just think that message has to get out there. And, you know, like the Democrats don't focus a lot of times. And I think it's really time to focus on those two Senate races in Georgia. That's our only chance. Yeah. That's my two cents. Yeah. But thanks for hearing me yeah. out, Tom. Okay. Sure. I'm with you, Steve. Thank you. Norris in uh, Kander, Louisiana. Hey, Norris, what's up? Good morning, my friend. I was actually calling you about something else, but this is more important. In Atlanta, Georgia, I just found out that if you're going to be turning 18 before the election day, even though you're 17 now, you can actually actually register to vote to be able to vote on that day. Oh, so this is the law in, in Georgia. That's great. So they need to be doing outreach, aggressive outreach to uh, high school students right now. Exactly. That's what I heard off of Georgia Station because yeah. I, wa- I was watching this program that mentioned, and they mentioned Atlanta, particularly the election yeah. in the Senate. So if you have the time, right. you can check and see if that's in all the states. Because I thought you well, had Well, I guarantee race. you it's not in all the states. Every state has okay. different rules about this sort right, of thing. And I know that there but are I'm some really, states where you can't yeah. register to vote until after you've turned 18. But that's great that Georgia lets you know kids basically pre-register. Well, Norris, thank you very much for the call. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. I, you know, I learn something new every day here on the Tom Harbin program, helping you win the water cooler wars. If we ever get back to our water coolers, stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Dr. Justin A. Frank, MD, psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. He's the author of Trump on the Couch and previous books, Obama and Bush on the Couch. Justin Frank, MD, is his Twitter handle. He's got a lively Twitter feed going on. It's, uh, he's really worth following over there. Dr. Frank, welcome back. I'd like to talk to you about cults. In fact, I sent you this article from the New York Times about Nexium and Keith Rainier, uh, this cult leader. And he still has, this guy has been convicted of essentially, you know, raping and blackmailing and you know, abusing all these women and stealing from all his followers. And yet he still has literally doctors, lawyers and movie stars who still follow him and preach his stuff. 
What does it take to get into a cult? What does it take to get out of a cult? And to what extent are there parallels between Nexium and some of these other cults that we've seen, say, Jim Jones and People's Temple? People are real familiar with that. And what Donald Trump is doing and what it looks like he's fixing to do going forward with his very own television network and his very own movement and probably running for president again so he can continue his fundraising scam. I realize there's a lot there. Sorry, but let me hand you that package and let you respond to it. Well, the answer is there's a lot to say and a lot to think about. First of all, the biggest question I have is to try to figure out what you mean by a cult. But the very fact of what he's doing is that he is giving a voice to the voiceless. And that's what his rallies were always about. He talks about the slime and getting rid of it and the elites. He was giving voice to the voiceless. And the people who feel that they're voiceless, the people from Hillbilly Elegy, the people who are feeling just overwhelmed. And so it's a a positive quality he has for them. And so once you give a voice to the voiceless, they do what's called psychologically, they imprint on you. And they imprint on you in such a way that there's a primitive, primitive meaning very early, infantile connection that is very deep. It's like a child to a mother in the very deep way, or like ducklings who follow the duck around. Uh, That's what he is essentially doing. And he has uh, imprinted on so many people that they really will follow him anywhere, and that they have become a cult. And a cult is based on, usually a cult is seen as something religious, but this is a kind of a cult that is based on a simple belief system where they exaggerate the importance of the leader because the leader has become somebody who tapped into their needs and is uh, very deeply connected to them and they to him. So that's the basis of it, and the basis is they feel that they've been voiceless, that they've been marginalized, they've become central rather than marginal. And when they talk about things and they become make America great again, they're the ones who are going to make America great, and he is going to be them. And it's a very powerful and primitive emotion. That makes so much sense. I mean, you've got workers across the Midwest in particular, who saw their jobs go to China as China industrialized and the United States deindustrialized as a result of Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, neoliberal policies. And they feel not just voiceless, but harmed. You've got white people who have who traditionally had major powers of position and you know, or positions of power in society relative to minorities, they could feel free to shout and curse and abuse, you know, minority members of, of society without fear of reprisal. And now they get caught on on YouTube videos and and uh, humiliated, and they're they're feeling you know, looking in from the outside. You've got men who have seen jobs go to women and and watch their wives get jobs that pay as much as them. I mean, is that who you're talking about with the voiceless? And am I missing anybody? No, you're not missing anybody. And I think that it is, and it's, it's paradoxical in a way, because many of these people 
who feel voiceless have actually been white people. They share a common humanity in terms of their work, some of them. But when they hear Trump about building a wall, that just rings true in some very deep, primitive way. And I actually think it may even change their uh, brain uh, chemistry and their physiology because they become, they're like addicts, and they and it changes how they are. And they really see him as a god. You know, people used to swoon when Hitler would walk by. I mean, they would swoon. Mm-hmm. Men and women. I think that this is what we're talking about. There's, it's a cult leader or a cult figure that is uh, extremely powerful. It's like a religion. It's like a uh, bizarre uh, devotion that other people who are outside of it can't understand at all. They can't. Right. Make so sense. if we divide these, if if we divide these into two buckets, uh, one bucket is the stuff that can be fixed because it's economic policy, and the other bucket is, you know, society evolving and it's not going to be fixed. Um, the first bucket would be the people who've lost their jobs to the deindustrialization. Uh, Trump is arguing yes. for reindustrialization, but he's not alone. Bernie Sanders and, and Sherrod Brown have been pitching that message for for decades. So right, the difference Democrats between could reach uh, those- Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, and Donald Trump is that Donald Trump says I can fix it, and Bernie Sanders and uh, Sherrod Brown would say we can fix it. So it's much Correct. more here's participatory. It. Uh, it's not a cult. It's it's based. It's right, the same right. idea, but it's not inviting attention only to the leader. Although Bernie did have some very uh, kind of uh, cult-like followers who uh, yeah, and he, and he still does. So much. And, and I get that. But, but where does, I'm trying so to go with this. Where I'm trying to go with it, and forgive me for hurrying along, but we, you know we're, we're two minutes away from the break. Democrats could pick up those people who are worried about deindustrialization by just a, a, yes. taking on a progressive policy on America first manufacturing. But yes. how do you deal with people? Is it just a waiting, waiting for the generations to change and people to die out for the men who are no, basically misogynists I mean, and, and the white racists? There's always been the potential for having a cult in this country. There were people who had cults years ago and generations ago. But the, the thing that's interesting and important about them is that you cannot, one of your points about having to wait is true. You cannot argue with a person who's in a cult. There's no point in arguing at the dinner table about it if they have a fixed belief. You cannot do it. And I think that should cause some relief in people because once you know you can't argue with them, you have to figure some other way of dealing with it. And one of the things that is important is that there is a common humanity and that everybody has struggles. And the question is, is there a way to listen to the struggles of people you don't like and people who you feel are racist and fascist and whatever else you want to label them as? How can you as an individual person in a family start to listen? and pay attention and talk. It's an ongoing thing, but it's not about trying to convince them or to argue. It's about looking what you have in common. There's well, a young man that... Uh, isn't, isn't, a, isn't there a bigger question of how do you get racists to acknowledge or understand or have empathy for the common humanity of people of color? You have to first get them to admit that they're racist. You can't hmm. have a... Ra- you can't... You have to hold people accountable. It's not like understanding their humanity doesn't mean you're not holding them accountable. And you can't get racists to become not racist as much as they first have to accept the fact that they are racist. Whereas Donald Trump would say, I'm the least racist person you've ever met. 
That's not a person yeah. who's accepting who he is. There's a guy named Future Debris, F-U-T-U-R-E-D-E-B-R-I-S. Uh, he's on Instagram, and he's really talks about how to deal with somebody he wants to punch in the face and at the same time realize that they're also human beings. And he's got some interesting ideas about it. I'll have to check it out. Professor Frank, thank you check so much. Check it out. This okay. is the Tom Hartman you. Program. Dr. Justin Frank, his uh, most recent book, Trump on the Couch. You can tweet him at Justin Frank, MD. We'll be right back. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Treason and Betrayal, The Rise and Fall of Individual One by Kenneth Ford McCallion. This is from the prologue. It was a gray, overcast day in Washington on January 20th, 2017, the day that Donald J. Trump was sworn in as 45th president of the United States. The weather matched the mood of the majority of Americans who had voted for Hillary Clinton, but whose candidate was denied the election as a result of an anachronistic electoral college system, a lackluster Clinton campaign that had ignored key battleground states such as Michigan and Wisconsin, and, of course, substantial help from the Russians. But the most significant assault on American democracy did not result from the illegal hacking and cyber attacks by Russian agents on our electoral system and social media. Rather, it came from Donald Trump's full-scale assault on American ideals and values, which had long been this country's most powerful weapon in its arsenal of democracy. In his grim inauguration speech, Trump basically announced the end of American exceptionalism, the hallowed concept and conviction that the United States has a special mission and place in history. Instead of extolling the virtues of our democracy and calling upon its citizens to raise the torch of liberty in every corner of this country and around the world, Trump took the cynical view that the United States was no better or worse than Russia or any other authoritarian country, and that all our government should be doing is to put America first by concentrating on building our country's economic wealth over all other considerations and by not worrying about other concerns such as human rights or even democratic rights and freedoms around the world. Trump's denouncement of America's commitment to liberty and justice for all was a frontal attack on the guiding principles forming the bedrock of our democracy and America's faith in itself and in its transcendent mission. The Declaration of Independence had been a clarion call that resonated not only on this continent, but around the world, declaring that the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was the cherished goal of all Americans and freedom-loving people the world over. Now, Trump was seeking to extinguish that fire by declaring that America was no longer the beacon of liberty and that every country, especially Russia, should be permitted to do whatever they wanted in their own country and its own sphere of influence. And that if they dismembered neighboring countries or slaughtered their own people who were fighting for greater civil and human rights, that this was of no importance to the United States. In other words, Trump was articulating precisely what Putin and others in the Kremlin wanted to hear, which is that Trump would give them the green light to rebuild the Russian Empire without fear of opposition or retaliation by the U.S. In doing so, Trump was demonstrating that he was a traitor to the traditional American democratic ideals. The enduring concept of American exceptionalism dates back to French writer Alexis de Tocqueville's reflections on America in his 1835 work, Democracy in America, where he concluded, quote, The position of the Americas is therefore quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one, end quote. Abraham Lincoln echoed this theme 
of American uniqueness when he noted in his Gettysburg Address in 1863 that one of the things that sets us apart from all of the countries in history is the sacred duty of the United States to ensure that the government of the people, of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. Since the end of the Civil War and up until January 20th, 2017, the idea of American exceptionalism has infused the rhetoric of virtually every modern president and political leader. In April 1917, near the end of the First World War, President Woodrow Wilson exhorted Americans to fulfill the country's destiny to make the world safe for democracy. In his State of the Union address in January 1941, when the future of liberal democracies in a world war against fascism hung in the balance, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent a message to its besieged Democratic allies around the world, reassuring them that, quote, we Americans are vitally concerned in your defense of freedom. We are putting forth our energies, our resources, and our organizing powers to give you the strength to regain and maintain a free world. This is our purpose and our pledge, end quote. Fifty-eight years ago, in his inaugural speech on 19, in January 1961, President John F. Kennedy reminded Americans that it was our country's fun, fundamental duty to protect human rights at home and around the world. He pledged that Americans would bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure that survival and the success of liberty. Ronald Reagan inspired us with his soaring rhetoric about America being a shining city on the hill, a beacon for freedom, hope, and liberty that was and always will be the model and example for all the world. President Obama, in April 2009, publicly announced, acknowledged America's, quote, extraordinary role in leading the world toward peace and prosperity, end quote, while cautioning that such a lofty goal could only be achieved through effective partnerships with other countries. He also often reminded us that America is, at its core, a good and caring nation that must work tirelessly in the cause of democracy and human rights all around the world. With Trump, this powerful concept of American exceptionalism, which has been enshrined in our nation's psyche for almost 200 years, was declared to be dead and buried, or so Donald Trump and his enablers would like us to believe. In the immortal words of Stephen Colbert, Trump, in his easily forgettable inaugural speech, basically compared America to a dumpster fire. America's longstanding mission to preserve and protect the causes of democracy, freedom, and human rights around the world had, according to Trump, virtually devastated the country. Treason and Betrayal is the book. My question, do you think it's even possible that Donald Trump would sell out our national interest, would basically out our spies in Russia or other countries in exchange for cash after the election? Do you think it's possible? And I mean, when we look back at Jared Kushner and the Trump administration supporting Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which, by the way, we just sold millions of dollars worth of weaponry to, we are hyper-militarizing the United Arab Emirates, and they participated in this blockade of Qatar. Qatar then is the number two investor in this large, uh, you know, their sovereign wealth fund in this large investment fund 
that gave Jared Kushner or loaned him his billion dollars to bail him out. So we know about that. We, 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 I, and, and it boggles my mind. I mean, you know, if, if, if Joe Biden, when he was president, if his son had said, I've got a billion dollar piece of real estate in New York. It's coming due. The debt is coming due. I got no money. Give me a billion dollars. And uh, Ukraine gave him a billion dollars and he paid off his property. You think the Republicans might be talking about that? I don't know why the Democrats aren't talking about this. And then over at the New York Times, you got a couple of reporters basically saying that it looks like Trump is getting ready to sell out our spies around the world or our intelligence assets. This is like Tom Clancy novel stuff. Kristen in Camas, Washington. Kristen, you got 30 seconds. I'm sorry. I thought I had a little more time. What's up? Oh, that's okay. I just wanted to say nobody's paying attention to TikTok or Gen Z. And myself and a group of other TikTokers have already raised $10,000 for Warnock and Ossoff. So That's great. That is something that nobody's paying attention to. And you know what? Boomers are going to die and Gen Z is going to get bigger. So I have hope. There you go. Okay, Kristen, I have hope too. I'm in those boomers that are going to croak one of these days, probably sooner than later, but I'm totally with you. Kristen, thank you. It's great to hear from you. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. Now is no time to go to sleep and figure, oh, the Democrats have got control of this. You know, no, we need to fight. We need to fight in Georgia. Get over to fairfight.com. And also check out the, you know, Warnock and Ossoff's websites and see how you can help out. Tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.